Uh, last week, just by way, a little bit of review from last week, because I know if I tested you, you'd probably all have it down. I get that, but I'm going to do it anyway, uh, just in case the person next to you forgot where we were last week so they can appreciate where we are today. Uh, last week, we talked specifically in chapter three about this mystery, right, that Paul uh, makes reference to several times in the opening um, passages of chapter three. He says in verse three, he says that this mystery was made known to him by revelation. I love the word mystery, right? It's kind of like, it's like, I've got a secret. You know, nobody likes to be left out on a secret. Does anybody like being left out, right? Nothing worse than when it feels like everybody knows something that you don't know. Does anybody like that? Nobody like, a little feedback here, right? Nobody likes being left out of a secret, right? And Paul's like, listen, there's this mystery that has been existing for centuries, all the, through the ages. And he says that, that this mystery was made known to me by Revelation in verse three. He says that he was given insight into this, this, this mystery in, in verse four. And then he says in verse nine, he says that, that he was called to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages. Paul's like, man, there's been a secret that the prophets of old and the writings of the past have all been alluding to and the angels haven't been able to figure it out and the priests haven't been able to figure it out and the prophets haven't been able to figure it out, but this mystery has been revealed to me. I mean, I don't know about you, but that, that'd make me want to listen up, right? And he says, this has, been, this has been revealed to me to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages. And then he, say, and then he defines it in verse six. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so Paul highlights, listen, here's the mystery. The mystery is, that the, that the Jews and the Gentiles are fellow heirs, but the mystery is so much more. You see, that is the outcome. The real mystery is not so much that they are one, not that they are heirs, but how they became one. Remember, we talked about that last week, and we said we had the different, we used the different coins, and we said how each one of the coins represents different people, different nations, different backgrounds, different value according to the eyes of the world, right? And how in the world was God going to get all of these people together? Because in that time that when, when Paul was writing, the Jews and the Gentiles, they didn't get along really well, right? The Jews looked at the Gentiles like, man, they're a bunch of dogs, Nobody wanted to be around them. The Gentiles looked at the Jews and saw them as this, this, this elitist group of people that just thought that they were, you know, um, so hypocritical and there was such contention, but then they all start coming to faith and all having to worship under the same roof, right? And Paul is reminding them that, listen, your value, your, your identity is no longer in your past, but your identity is in Christ, and how in the world is God gonna bring these people together, right? That's the mystery. And we talked about, we used the envelope last week, remember? We said that the way in which God does that is he takes each and every one of us with our different pasts and our different backgrounds and our different races and our different experiences and our different stories, and he brings them all together and he puts us in Christ. 
And now in Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And now we, who were many people, are one in Christ. And Paul says, man, that's, that's the mystery revealed. The angels knew something like that was supposed to happen, but how it was going to happen, nobody would have ever thought that the way in which it was going to happen is that we would be in Christ. That's heavy stuff. That's really heavy stuff in Christ. And so Paul is highlighting how these two became one in Christ. And he, and he, and he, and he spends a lot of time focusing on that. And then it brings him to this next section of scripture that we are picking up with this morning. And because this incredible revelation of this mystery causes him to respond in a very appropriate way. If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. We'll pick up where we left off last week. And he said, for this reason, right, connecting what he just said about this mystery being revealed, this, this, this union that we have in Christ, this union that we have with one another, Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. I love that. Let's just pause there for a second. He says, it, it, we see a beautiful picture of the family of God. He said, because of this union that we have with Christ and this union that we have with one another, he says, it causes me to bow my knee to our Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. You see, our identity is in the family in which we belong to. I mean, we have, we have, a, we have a tremendous love and appreciation for our, our family. Well, maybe, maybe you do. I don't know. That's not, always, that's not always safe to say, right? You can pick your friends. You can't pick your family. That's who you got stuck with. But, but in, a, in a perfect world, right, everybody kind of loves their family, right? Everybody else could talk about them, but God help the person. You, know, God, you could talk about them, but God help the person who speaks about your family, right? There's a, there's a love that we have for our family and appreciation that we have for our family, right? In fact, I really believe with all my heart that God created family so that we can experience on earth what is going to be a much bigger picture that we will experience for all of eternity because the, the experience that we have with our little nuclear family here is so much greater when we step out into time and into eternity and experience the family of God. And so what Paul does is, is he highlights, he says, he looks at you know, those of us who are in Christ. And he's like, man, when I recognize that, we have one father. And it's in him. Every family in heaven on earth is named. It's a reminder to me, and a tremendous encouraging reminder, of the regathering of all the saints of God. Those who have, those who have gone on before us, and those of us who will meet them at the end, there'll be a day where there's a great reunion that awaits the redeemed. That each and every one of us that have lost loved ones that we long to see again, those who are in Christ, there will be that great reunion of the family of God. Paul's highlighting the beauty of this. And then he highlights it. It's a picture of how every nation, tribe, and tongue Every time period, past, present, and future, 
will gather together for all of eternity as one family named in the Father, the people of God. It's powerful, powerful stuff. And Paul says, maybe because of that, I bow my knee. He's just like, it's so amazing that it just, he bows my knee and he, and he, and he prayerfully approaches our God and our Father on their behalf and on behalf of each and every one of us who are, who are reading it. His awareness of that causes him to approach God, bows before the Father. He says, I pray that according to the riches, that according to the riches of his glory. I like that. According to the riches of his glory. Notice, notice Paul does not say out of the riches of his glory, but according to the riches of his glory. That might seem like a distinction without a difference, but there is a huge difference in that. If I'm a billionaire and I give you $100, I am giving you out of my riches, right? But if I'm a billionaire and I give you a million dollars, I am giving you according to my riches. In other words, the, 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 the nature of the gift runs parallel with the ability to provide. God does not just give us out of his riches, right? He just doesn't pull it out of the bank, but according to his riches. And when we recognize how big God is and how loving God is and how faithful God is and how grand his love is for us, he grants to us according to, not just out of, but in accordance to his riches in glory. A big difference. And Paul will pray four things for these Ephesian people for each and every one of us. And, and, and they're not distinct things. What's interesting is we'll see there's a progression of these four things that he will pray for for them. We'll see that he'll, he'll begin to, each one will, will build on the other and bring us towards the fullness that God has for us in Christ. And so I'm gonna read the whole section of scripture and then we'll kind of go back and, and, and look at how each one of those builds upon God's heart for each and every one of us. He said he prays that number, verse 16, he says that according to the riches of his glory, here's his prayer, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man, inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What a beautiful prayer that Paul prays for them and preserved and directed for us today. The first thing that Paul prays for them is that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. Now, let's kind of break that down a little bit. 
here is Jesus. He is, he is resurrected, right? And, and, and he, we see it's before his ascension that he says to the disciples, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon me, come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth, right? What a powerful promise we see from Jesus. Jesus had mentioned earlier on that it was important that he goes away for when he goes away, the Holy Spirit will come. And then he says, here's the promise that when the Spirit comes, you will receive power. The Greek word that's there for, that we translate uh, power is the word dunamis, and it's where we get the word dynamite from, right? And he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive like dynamite. You will receive power. Power for what? Power to be my witness, to be a reflection of me in the world around you, to be my ambassadors. You will receive power. And he says, and where will that take place? In Jerusalem, which is where the church started, and in Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And so we start seeing the church throughout the book of Acts moving from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Because the Holy Spirit descended upon them in Acts chapter two. And that which Joel prophesied about comes into fruition and the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and they are empowered. And we see all throughout the book of Acts, we see the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through the church. The powerful moment. This audience of believers that Paul is now writing to in Ephesus was a part of that company. And he says, He's praying that they would be empowered by the Spirit. But see, the reality is they already had the Holy Spirit because they were believers. Right? So he wasn't praying that they would receive something they didn't have in the person of God. He was recognizing, he was saying that there was something that he's praying for that is in addition to what they've experienced. And it's not that he's praying that they would receive more of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is not a, a quantity. It's not like it's a, it's, it's not something you can measure in volume. But he's praying that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But what's, what, what was he, why was he praying that they would be empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, because they, like every one of us, have the tendency to lean upon our own strength. They, like everyone of else, everyone of else, tend to employ our own resources, right? To walk in accordance with our own understanding, right? When we, we, when we don't want to wait on God, when we don't want to trust God for things that don't make sense for us, we start getting very creative on what God needs to do. And we start using our own resources. We start to, to understand, we, we, we come to our own conclusions as to what God needs to do. And you see, the reality of it is nothing will limit our ability to do great things for God than just by going after things that we can accomplish in our own strength. And Paul is setting the stage for this church and saying, man, what God's calling you to, you're not going to be able to rely on your own power, your own ability, your own understanding, your own strength. My prayer for the church is that they would be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit, that they would be fully relying upon God. And so his prayer was that they would relinquish their dependence on their own resources and be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in their inner being, fully depending, to fully relying on God. 
Now, that, that ought to cause us to pause for a moment to ask ourselves the question, are there areas that, that we don't rely on God ourselves? Do we find ourselves using our own strength, not trusting God to come through, impatient with God's timing, employing our own understanding, shooting for small things when perhaps God is calling us to reach out and trust him for big things. I think we all are guilty of that from time to time. And so Paul is saying, oh, my prayer for you is that you won't limit God, that you be strengthened with power from the Holy Spirit to accomplish far more than your abilities and your talents and your understanding could ever bring you. And he says, I'm praying that this would take place in their inner being. In your inner being. What's their, what's their inner being? It's that new nature that we're recipients of when we embraced Christ. You see, prior to Christ, our inner being was dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to respond to God, unable to rely on the power of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but as we saw, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus, right? And so God steps in and he makes us alive. That inner being, that new nature, Paul's prayer is that that inner being would be empowered to fully depend on and rely on God. It's, it's that mindset, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Strengthening our inner man. And there's something very exciting about trusting God and seeing God show up, isn't it? There's something really awesome when we see God step into a situation that we didn't know how in the world this was ever gonna work itself out. We were up and worried and concerned and not knowing what we were going to do and how we were going to, how we were going to respond. And then all of a sudden, God shows up and it's like, oh man, no wonder that these things happen. And God shows up as the, as the hero in the story. And Paul's like, man, I pray that your inner being would be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see the strengthening, and then we see the progression now. So the strengthening of our inner man leads us to maturity, growing, sanctification, ongoing trust, right? And so now we see he's praying that they would, that they would be leaning upon the Holy Spirit. Then he's praying that they would grow together. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. He's highlighting the importance of allowing the power of the Holy Spirit to lean them in the direction of spiritual maturity. And he'll use three words to, to, to uh, help us measure what that looks like. The the first one is that he uses the word dwell, then he uses the word rooted, and he uses the word grounded. Dwell, rooted, and grounded. That, you, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Notice he says that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Were they Christians or were they not Christians? They were Christians. So if they were Christians, then Christ already dwelt in their heart. So why would Paul be asking God to do something in them that already took place? It's okay to ask those questions, right? 
If something doesn't make sense on the surface, got to dig a little deeper and see what's going on here, right? He's praying that God would dwell in their heart, that Christ would dwell in their hearts. Well, Christ already dwelt in their heart. So what really was Paul praying for? One theologian defines dwell as settling down and calling it home. That Christ would settle down and call home their hearts. The prayer was that Christ would feel at home in their hearts. Not that he would just be present, but that the pace and priorities of their heart would would reflect the master of the house, Jesus Christ. That Christ would dwell in their hearts. In Christ, at home, in their hearts. That's a great question to ask ourselves, isn't it? Is Christ at home with the pace and the priorities and the decisions and the lifestyles? Because what I bring myself into, hello, I bring Christ in as well. And you see, that is what starts to set the stage for maturity. As you start to realize that that place that I go, that thing that I do, that lifestyle I choose, that that whatever it may be, I bring Christ with me. And Paul is praying this church that's empowered, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that Christ would dwell in their hearts. And then he says that you would be rooted. We all understand the importance of a root system to a tree. If a tree is going to survive and remain healthy, its roots must travel deep into the soil to enjoy the richness of its, of its nutrients. It's from the deep soil that the, that the roots nourish the tree. If the tree, ha- if the tree has no roots, if it, is, if it is very shallow, that tree is not going to be healthy. Likewise, his prayer was that their roots would go deep into the love of God so that they would be healthy and mature that Christ would dwell in their hearts and that they would be rooted in the love of God, that their roots would go deep past the shallowness of our world, past the shallowness of our expectations and our priorities of life, past it all and go deep into the love of Christ. A good question for every Christian to consider is, where is my lifeline? Where are my roots going into? From where am I drawing the nutrients that I need for my spiritual life? How consistent am I in ensuring my spiritual health is going to get the nutrients that it needs? Am I rooted? Because here's the thing, the power of the Holy Spirit and the the wonderful emotion that that brings and the excitement that that brings and and all the wonderful things that that brings will fall short if our roots are not deep. Our, Our roots must go deep in the love of God. And then he talks about being grounded. This idea of being grounded, it refers to our our foundation the very essence of what we believe, what do we stand on in our life? You know, a building is only going to be as strong as the foundation that it's built upon. 
You can build this massive concrete house, but if you put it on sand, it's just a matter of time before the storms of life come and wipe out that house. And we've all seen it, haven't we? We've seen on the outside things and people that look wonderful and spiritual and look like they got their act together in every possible area. The problem was they had no foundation. And when the storms of life came, they collapsed because their foundation was on sand. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on a rock. It had a solid foundation. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house and it felt and great was the fall of it. Paul's prayer was that they, that they would mature by having their hearts in a place that Christ felt comfortable dwelling in. That they would go deep in their roots and solid in their foundation. Can I tell you, my heart grieves for the lack of roots and depth and foundation that I see in the church today. We see people falling by the wayside left and right as we come nearing towards the end time and we we recognize that there's a falling away that's coming. How does that stage get set? Because people have been okay with just going to church and keeping it very surface level and regurgitated truth. You know what regurgitated truth is? That the only stuff they learn is the stuff people tell them. You see, the same Holy Spirit of God that is in the person bringing the message resides in you as well. And what we need to be doing as Christ followers is we must be rooted deep in the word of God. We must be grounded in the words of God so that when the storms of life come, and they will, I promise you they will, it won't be be taken out. We must be growing in that maturity foundation solid in the word of God. Strengthening our inner man, it leads to maturity. And maturity, being rooted and grounded, leads to this next thing that Paul will pray for, and that is this, a a better comprehension of God's love. Maturity, solid foundation, will not turn you into an egghead that knows it all up here. No, it'll lead you into a greater comprehension of God's love. It ought to create in you a humility and an awareness and appreciation for what God has done for you that you just keep falling in love with him over and over and over again. Look what Paul prays for in verse 18. He says that you may, uh, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you would know the love of Christ. This really ties back to the original idea of understanding who we are in Christ. That we would be so entrenched in our understanding of God's love for us 
You see, when we don't understand God's love for us, we leave ourselves open to missing the security and the assurance that comes from his love. And it also creates an environment that we allow other people to tell us what love ought to look like. We must understand to the degree that we can what God's love is for us. If you're here this morning and, and you're not married and you're waiting to see who that person is, God does encourage you, make sure that you only step in the direction of the one who has, that's pursuing the heart of God. Because if you, don't, if you don't find somebody who is passionate about the love of God, they will never know how to rightly love you. They will never know how to rightly love you. You must know, when you, when you know the love of God for your soul, for your life, you'll never accept the wrong kind of love from somebody else. Don't lower your standards. Wait on God to bring in his time the right one. Paul's prayer is that they would know the love of God. How much does God love us anyway? I mean, I, my guess is there's not, a, there's not a person in this room, including myself, that has fully understood the depths of God's love for us. How much does God really love us? Well, I guess before we could possibly answer that question, we probably have to ask ourselves a different question. How much does the Father love the Son? Because to the degree that the Father loves the Son is the same degree that the Father loves you. You say, well, that's pretty heavy. I didn't say it, Jesus did. John, John chapter 15, listen to what Jesus says. Jesus says, verse nine, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remove yourself from the equation for a moment. Think about this for a second. How much does the Father love Jesus? It is a perfect love. It's not even a quantitative thing. How can you possibly understand and wrap your arms around the, the love of God? What Jesus is saying is, look, as the Father loves me in the same way that the Father loves me, so I have loved you. And then he says something very profound. He says, look, he says, abide in my love. As the Father loves me, so I have loved you. He doesn't say you have to work for it, that you have to do all these things right. No, he says, listen, as the Father loves me, so I have loved you. I want you to abide in my love, dwell in my love, park there, live there. Let that be your reality. As the Father of love has loved me, so I have loved you. Listen to the degree that you pursue the heart of God and you understand God's love for you is the degree that you'll walk in the blessing and, 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 and plan and design that God has for your life. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Look, he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So wait a minute. So what is Jesus? Is Jesus saying, wait, I have to do all of these things in order to get his love? Well, on the surface, it may seem like that, but if we look at the next verse, Jesus, the rest of that verse, Jesus says, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. And so it's not like we're earning God's love. We are to be abiding in his love. And that love for, that we have for God will be reflected in our obedience to him. These things I've spoken to you, look, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
that your joy may be full. Listen, nobody will ever fill your heart like Jesus. Nobody will ever fill those gaps like Jesus. If you're ever feeling lonely, if you're ever feeling unwanted, if you're ever feeling unlovable, if you're ever feeling like you're second class, just get a hold of how much Jesus loves you. Know who you are in Jesus Christ because when you don't know that, you will settle for second best and they will never give to you what only God can give. And Jesus says, when you know know that, your joy will be full. That's quite a metric. As the Father loved me, so I love you. And it gets a little heavier. He says in verse 12, this is my commandment, this is my commandment that you love one another. How much? As I have loved you and the Father has loved me. So the Father has loved me, I have loved you, and you ought to love one another. Is that enough to keep us busy for the rest of our lives? I mean, is that really? And Jesus actually calls it what? A commandment. It's not like this is a suggestion. Hey, I have a good idea. If you've got some time in your schedule, right? Why don't you try and love one another like I love you? No, this is a commandment. And John will talk later on about the importance of our love for one another as a defining metric as to whether we truly, really do love God. He'll say in 1 John, don't say you love God and hate your brother. He says, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. Our love for one another is directly connected to our love for, father, for our Father. It's expressed for us. But listen, the big picture is this. Know how much God loves you. You are loved. You're loved. You're loved. This is the kind of love that Paul prayed that they would comprehend. But notice something. It's not, it's not just an intellectual love or an intellectual knowledge that he prayed that God would give to them but it's a knowledge that they would experience deep in their knower, deep in their inner being. They may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth. What is that? There's There's some measurable aspects to love, right? He'll say later on, Greater love is no man than this, than man lay down his life for his friends. The way, you know which, the way in which you know love exists is by the way in which people treat you. And so what Paul is saying is, I pray that you see the metrics of love in your, that they would see the metrics of love in their lives. But in addition to that, I pray that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that goes beyond our thinking goes beyond our intellect and it becomes a, 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 very, a very part of who we are. Deep in our knower that you'd know the love of Christ. Being empowered by the Spirit, strengthening, being strengthened in the Spirit by our inner man, it's what leads to maturity. Maturity leads to the comprehension of God's love and then the comprehension of God's love leads to being filled with the fullness of God, that they would be filled, right? And to know the love of Christ, verse 19, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you would be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the culmination of all that Paul is praying. I don't have enough time in my lifetime to explain what all the fullness of God, I don't have enough in me to be able to communicate what all the fullness of God will look like in your life. That's why it's so important that we allow the Holy Spirit to unpack for us what some preacher can never do. 
But this is the culmination of everything that Paul is praying. That they would be strengthened in such a way that it would drive them to maturity, which would help them to understand and embrace God's love for them. And when they know God's love for them, they would begin to be able to move out in that love, not to attain salvation, but because of their salvation. And to be able to move out to a world that so desperately needs to experience the love of God for them. Paul's prayer for them. We see this progression, each one bringing us to different levels of maturity, culminating in being filled with the fullness of God. Additionally, Paul is alluding to something that we'll address shortly as we get a little further into the text regarding the fullness and the filling of the Holy Spirit that enables and empowers us to be his witnesses to the world around us. I look forward to addressing that, 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 that subject on another day, but let's just focus here on where Paul is praying. He prayed, number one, that they'd be strengthened with power by the Holy Spirit in their inner man. And that that would lead them to a place of maturity, that Christ would dwell in their rooted and grounded and maturing hearts, which would result in a greater comprehension of God's love, not just comprehension intellectually, but deep, deep in our knower, which would enable them to be filled with the fullness of God. Now, you, 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 we read this, and we, and we can see this list, and it's kind of like, that's a little overwhelming. We need to remember something. This is not a command that Paul is laying on the church at Ephesus. This is a prayer that, God, that Paul is praying to God to do in the lives of the people in Ephesus. Because he is, as we saw, he is their workmanship created in Christ Jesus. He is, we are his workmanship, right, in created in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is praying that God would do this work in the people of God. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't it encouraging that it's not me who needs to get me across the finish line? Right, but it's the posture of a surrendered life and that just says, God, your will be done. How do we get there? It just starts in the beginning by professing Christ as our Lord and, 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 and walking in obedience and pursuing that love relationship with Christ. And Paul will conclude this section with these very encouraging words. Lest we read that and think, oh my goodness, there's no possible way. Maybe the person next to me can do that. Maybe the guy up there can do that. But there's no possible way that that could ever be said of me. Paul says this, now to him who is able to do far abundantly than all that we ask or think. According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. He's saying that God will do. Don't think for one second. Don't limit God's ability. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above whatever you could ask or think. God is able. Don't get discouraged. He that began a good work in you, he's going to complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. You are his workmanship. Just love Jesus. Just, you say, is it really that simple? It's that simple. Love Jesus to the degree that you pursue the heart of God. 
the clearer life becomes and the decisions become. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will put into you the things you ought to desire. That's what the scripture says. What Paul is doing here in these first three chapters, one, two, and three, is he's talking about our, our position in Christ. With, with, with incredible, consistent clarity, he's reminding us over and over and over again who you are. And now as we begin to enter into chapter four next week, this is where the hinge takes place. Now we've been, we're gonna move from our position in Christ to our practices in Christ, but we cannot engage in the practices, the way in which we walk out our lives unless we understand who we are in Christ. Our understanding of who we are in Christ is the fuel that fills the tank that our lives will run on. We must know who we are in Christ. When we don't understand who we are in Christ, we will feel defeated and discouraged and beat ourselves up every single time we drop the ball. Our understanding of who we are in Christ is the fuel that fills the tank that our lives will run on. We must remember. And so next week, as we begin now to this next section, and we look at the practices of Christ, Paul will lay out for us Here's what this new life does. Here's what this new creation does. Here's now how we live. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for what you've done in us. Lord, we recognize that we bring nothing to the table other than the very need for forgiveness and redemption. And yet, in your grace and your mercy, you've extended love to each and every one of us. Lord, help us never to settle for love from others as a replacement from the love that we ought to receive from you. I pray, Lord, that these truths that we see in your word would go deep, deep in our hearts, that we would, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. I pray, Father, that, that we would be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being. I pray, God, that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And, oh God, that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And that, Lord, that by your grace, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.